I'll have a raptor's bath for myself. He who controls the spice controls the universe. Welcome back to the Film 89 Podcast. This is episode 72. I'm Sky, and joining me tonight is a man who ardent listeners will be more than familiar with. He's one of our most prolific guest hosts, and by talking now as I am, I'm just adding even more to the existing wealth of Film 89 introductions he's had. Were you to edit them together, you'd probably have at least 10 minutes of audio reverie on someone who ironically needs no introduction. It's, of course, Mr. William Scurry. Bill, welcome back to Film 89. The sleeper has awakened, Sky. I'm very happy to be here. And tonight we're going to be discussing director Denis Villeneuve's latest epic cinematic undertaking, his adaptation of Frank Herbert's legendary science fiction tale, Dune, or, to be more precise, the first part of Villeneuve's adaptation. Now, Bill, I guess this must rank as one of your most eagerly awaited films in recent memory. Is that the case? Yeah, definitely. I would say after uh, Endgame, which I did not know I would be looking forward to as much as I did after Infinity War came out, they really sold the deal. I can't think of anything that was going to fill this spot of just like waiting for Dune to come around, especially when they announced who the director was going to be. Yeah, he was on the live stream with James Hancock a few years back on, uh, you know, Frank Herbert's Dune, the book, and then David Lynch's subsequent 1984 film. You know, it is going to be very difficult not to make comparisons between the film we're going to be talking about tonight and Lynch's film. Obviously, that was a very in-depth discussion you had, and you know, please check out on James Hancock's uh, Geekin YouTube channel because uh, it really is a great chat. It goes without saying, Bill, you are a huge fan of Dune, but which was it that first grabbed your attention? Was it Frank Herbert's novel, or was it David Lynch's 1984 big screen adaptation? It was the 84 movie in the theater that I saw when I was nine years old. I did not read Dune until I had jury duty, I would say, a decade later during my collegiate experience. Um, So I think I knocked it off over the course of a week waiting to not be called eventually for a jury. The movie got its hooks into me early and the book came later. I'll fess up, Bill, straight away. I've, I've not read the book. I found The Lord of the Rings a monumental chore and I love Peter Jackson's films. 
either tackling something like Dune, being as impenetrable a book as a lot of people have said it is, that's never really appealed to me. And I'm not the most avid reader, unfortunately. I don't read anywhere near as much as I could or should. Does it go without saying then, Bill, that I'm a fool and I'm missing out having not read the book? <laughs> no, because I've only read, there's six books of the original Herbert Run, and um, his son and the estate, this other guy, Kevin Anderson, have filled the breach, I would say, for the last 20 years, and they've been writing, I mean, what I think of as fan fiction, but it's a little bit of that, um, oh, you know, uh, Herbert has a whole notebook full of things that were concepts ready to go, and they've spun this stuff off. But you're talking about six original books, and believe it or not, of those six, I've only read four. I could explain to you why I stopped at God Emperor and didn't read Chapter House Dune and Heretics of Dune, but I mean, that might be a conversation for another live stream at some point. So the, the first portion of the story then, in terms of the books, what are we looking at? Because what portion of, of the of the existing books is Villeneuve looking to adapt to? Believe it or not, just the, the very first book, which is in three, I mean, you know, as books have inside them a sort of book per se, a rubric. Isn't the, the first book, isn't it Dune, Moadim and the Prophet? Correct. So there's three separate chapters. And what Villeneuve has done is like divided that second third down the center to split this into two bicameral halves. I got you. Okay. Just looking at that book then, or, or three books, or whatever you're going to call it, what are, what are we talking in terms of pages? Just, you know, for me to assess whether or not this is something I need to belatedly do and, and sort of get the book and read it. Well, you know, in terms of pages, I think most most uh, versions of this book right now run about 800 pages. But to be honest, you know, I, I, I've read it. I've read the book, the first book, about one and a half times. And I've I've recounted it via notes a number of times for these other programs I've done over the years. I've seen the movies a million times. I've seen the John Harrison miniseries a million times. So it's it's almost like at this point, the characters speak to me on their own in the book. I've had the benefit of, for instance, uh, Sharon Phillips doing uh, Reverend Guy, Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mahayam. And I've had Ken McMillan and all the it, it really propels the book. Mm. So the length was never a stumbling block for me. It's hard to say that for somebody else, you know, that could apply. But I mean, I, I think that Herbert's prose was so dense but not in a dissuasively dense way. It's really rich and satisfying. And also Herbert said some things about the human condition in a way that I don't think other sci-fi authors really said to me in a way, and maybe I wanted to hear them. So the length was never um, a turnoff. What about then the other side of things, but the fact that, uh, and this is going on discussions I've had with people who've read the book, who've said it is a little bit kind of heavy going, because I think maybe not so much the size for me, but you know, the actual volume of book itself, but the actual density and uh, you know the, the way it's written is it something that you think you know someone with you know a possible attention disorder such as myself is going to be able to you know get their head around yeah i mean i could definitely see that that could very possibly be a, uh, something that would keep people out of it not to say that there isn't plenty of scenes in tolkien of men having snacks and talking about singing songs and, and all this folklore and tolkien went through the trouble of building an entire language just because he was bored one afternoon and he was a linguist professor. Yeah. Uh, Frank Herbert didn't necessarily build an entire language, but he's very interested in all these little bits and pieces, the technology, the ecology, the language, the religion, uh, the commerce, the mercantile, the politics of these things. I, you know, if, if you like Game of Thrones, I have a feeling that there's a lot here for you, if that's mm. the kind of thing you go for. So go, going back to Herbert's original story then, Bill, are you able to, to sort of maybe summarize the original story in a nutshell for people who are unfamiliar with the story? Obviously, if they've just seen Villeneuve's film, they would only seen half of the book. It's set, isn't it, in 10191? 
10191. Is yeah. that in our universe or is this supposed to be in the future or is it supposed to be, you know, kind of like Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away? No, it's still Anno Domini. It is 1091 of, of 10191 of Anno Domini. And that's right. part of what makes it so compelling for me is that it is holding with our Earth and our history. They make reference to the Battle of the English Channel, which is World War II. It's, it's all part and parcel. History of all sorts for 10,000 years is contained inside Dune. See, now that was something that it wasn't until having recently seen Villeneuve's film, and there's, ref- there's, there's, there's subtle references in the film, like the, you know, the way he, the word humans is thrown around. And, and even the, you know, the on-screen thing of the year 10-191, I thought, well, hang on, is this in our time? I, I had no idea that it was actually set in this universe, you know, the, you know, the same one we live in now. And in that case, does Earth feature at all, or has it been destroyed, or, or is there no reference to it? Um, it's a little bit like Battlestar Galactica, where one assumes that human life sprang off of Earth, but it's just become, you know, some part of lore. And the worlds that populate the Imperium now are as important. You know, you have 50 Earths, you have a thousand Earths. You don't need one Earth anymore. Right. Humans are everywhere. That's yeah, the yeah. point. Okay, then. So let's talk about your first introduction to Dune then. David Lynch's 1984 film. Yeah, so I... My father took me to see Dune 84 in the theater, and I had no idea what it was. It looked like it was a cousin to Star Wars, Star Trek, which, of course, it might as well have been. There were spaceships. There were out of, you know, there were laser guns. There were spacesuits. There was uh, all the things that I loved to see as a nine-year-old. What I didn't expect was to walk into a theater and to get a glossary, which they were handing out. Uh, the studio handed out this uh, list of terms that were going to appear in the movie, uh, vocabulary. It was had things like still suit, it had things like shields, uh, all the things that were in uh, Gam Jabbar, Reverend Mother, so so on and so forth. I've never seen a glossary handed to anybody when they were nine years old. I mean, if you Google it. It's out there. There's plenty mm-hmm. of copies of this thing. People, people for years and years and years use it as a little bit of a knife to dig into Dune's side that it was this movie that needed a glossary. It wasn't just a standalone thing. But I mean, for me, I'm a comic book nerd. I love this stuff. I used to read the handbooks of the Marvel Universe. I used to read the DC Who's Who. Like, I love nothing more than annotated notes that just, you know, buttress the world of fantasy that I'm I'm interested in. So uh, I love this uh, list, and I love the fact that it was a movie that thought it was so important it commanded a list, that you needed such a thing. And of course, D- David Lynch's vision is so whole in this movie, and I mean, I've gone on record by saying that I don't love David Lynch. I'm not a David Lynch guy. Dune is the one movie, if I, it's not only is the one movie his I love, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, maybe top four kind of thing. But it's like he did something specifically. You need his bent way of filmmaking, his very austere, cold way in which he views the world to kind of create this feudal system in a film. And maybe it was made like a thumbprint specifically for me. And a few other people, a few other psychopaths got into it too. Hmm. But I mean, I can't tell you why in particular it worked other than maybe it was just such a compliment that Star Trek was doing Star Trek. Star Wars had done Star Wars. But this was something else doing something else entirely. It was a compliment to all the space-bound sort of futuristic fiction that I was loving already. Yeah, so going back to that thing you just said about that about the book. Now, yeah, granted, maybe when they released the film, they thought, yeah, you know, we need to kind of get the audience sort of geared up for all the stuff we're going to be throwing them in terms of exposition because it seems to be that having seen both the Lynch film and then now Villeneuve's film and having not read the books there's there's a lot to get your head around isn't it now you made the, the comparison they built the Game of Thrones now 
I went to the Game of Thrones show having not read any of George R. R. Martin's books. And for the first couple of episodes, it was kind of like that overwhelming thing, which I also experienced when I was watching the Lord of the Rings films 20 years ago. I hadn't read the books. Going into the first film, it seemed like an overload of characters and lore and things which were established, which I felt I should already know. And it took a couple of viewings for me to get my head around who's who, who comes from where, whose motivation is this, who's on the side of whoever, before I was able to then fully enjoy what I, you know was being presented to me. It was the same with Game of Thrones. I, I do feel now that having recently rewatched the 84 Dune and having now seen this film that I am kind of slowly coming more to understand this universe that is being presented to me. But, you know, giving that book out at the beginning of a film could be nothing more than just an homage to... You know, they, they were doing this in 1979 with Star Trek The Motion Picture. You know, there were lobby books being given out to, uh, you know, the first couple of screenings in America because I've, I've seen them going for silly amounts of money on eBay. You know, they, they were they were given out back in the 60s for films like, you know, epics like uh, Spartacus and Cleopatra. You know, they, they, were, they were giving out similar you know, paraphernalia to, to cinema goers then. But yeah, you know, it could have easily been something then which is used, you know, to stab the film by saying, you know, your film is so overblown and complicated that you need to, you know, spoon feed your audience by way of giving them extra material. You know, I suppose there is an argument that the film alone should be enough to get the story across. But how successful do you think David Lynch's film, and I know Lynch has gone on record to say that it's, it's the least favourite of his films, how successful do you think, in isolation, not compared to the other adaptations of Dune, which came afterwards, how successful do you think it was in getting that book and putting it on screen? Bearing in mind, the budget was only around about $40 million. Wild, man. Wild. Personally, I think it was a runaway success. I mean, it's difficult to, to see the world now, or at least to separate myself from the nine-year-old in 1984 who was more neuroplastic about taking in big ideas you know, I had very few sort of calcified, ossified, rigid positions in terms of what I needed my space fiction to be like. You know, I mean, I watched years and years of crappy films on VHS and drive-ins and, and, and you know, cinema and all these things that maybe were not good inheritors to, to Star Wars and, and, and Star Trek. You know, but here was Dune, this massive thing that looked like it was punching the same weight, at least as some of the, you know, the slower moments of Star Wars, trying to do a different thing. But I mean, I think that David Lynch, in a particular way, chose to do things with his version. And that, you know, one of the beauties of watching Villeneuve's version, without tipping my hand too much, is that I love seeing what Villeneuve chose to put in and leave out. Him synthesizing the elements of the book to create a different story to say, here's what I think Dune is important, but here's you know here's what's going to uh, fill the film of Dune for for him. Um, I see David Lynch did the same things with his, and I really love the decisions Lynch made. You know, he he made it into a slightly different organism than the book. He told a different story that was a little more fantastic. It was a little more supernatural. But I think that even more than that, there is this execution thing that I, it took me years and years and years to figure out why, if I don't like David Lynch movies, why do I love Dune so much? And there is this really cold and royal distance in a lot of his acting and a lot of his storytelling. It is peculiar. It's idiosyncratic. But one thing it sometimes does not run for me is, is red-hot-blooded passion. It is very intellectual. It is very decided on. It is almost like a, a well-thought-upon painting. There's no errant moves. It rarely ever moves with, you know, like a red-blooded fury. Nothing ever feels spontaneous. It sort of feels very deliberate and thought out. 
And to a certain degree, if you're going to tell the story of the feudal system in space, which, you know, you're asking me before, what is this simple log line of Dune? Well, you can say it is like Game of Thrones. It's the feudal system and out of space. Everything we know in our popular fiction that comes from medieval Europe that, you know, it was reconstituted by Herbert with a lot of modern economics and politics thrown in. But David Lynch has a way of almost like synthesizing this to make it seem like it's Hungarian counts and Venetian dukes and papists and Barberinis in Rome fighting each other. These large houses with ornate tapestries and coaches and navies around the world fighting each other. Almost like, and once I got that, I'm like, oh, I really have not seen this before. Even though it maybe is the grounding for a lot of our popular fiction, David Lynch kind of like treating it like you're looking at busts in a museum, statuary inside Rome or in, in Madrid or, you know, in the Louvre in Paris. There's this elegance to it, this classic thing where it's, oh, it's already all been decided. These are old people who were alive and warring with each other in the 1700s. And it almost gets that point across. And so him keeping a really even keel and a real sort of like cool distance, especially with Kyle MacLachlan as your lead, is what makes me feel like that's what's incredibly successful. It's a tone thing. It's like from the top down. And maybe that's why nobody likes the goddamn thing in the first place is because people don't like cold, austere storytelling. They want red, hot-blooded, passionate storytelling. It feels spontaneous. So Dune, you know, 84 Dune is a film that I, I don't know if I'll, if I'll ever be at rest or at ease with it. The first time I ever saw it, it was on home video when I was, I don't know, maybe it was the, the late 80s. A great uncle who was a huge influence on me in terms of film. He got me a copy and don't know if it was the theatrical version or the longer, what they call the TV version. Yeah. But I, I do remember being kind of like perplexed, baffled, and I think ultimately kind of turned off from it. I've no doubt that is because I was too young to appreciate you know, the film for what it was. And I really do wish, and maybe this kind of reflects on the fact that I didn't, you know, maybe Sky Age Date was nowhere near as emotionally and mentally mature as Bill Age Date. I, you know, I don't know how, you, how old you were when you saw the film, but I certainly think that it bounced off me in the wrong way. I think I, I came back to it then, not until the DVD era, which would have been you know late nineties onwards, where I gave it another go. That was definitely the the theatrical cut I saw the second time. And again, I just remember being underwhelmed and, and kind of wanting more. But I think maybe certainly appreciating it to a greater degree than I did in the first viewing. Fast forward to a few months ago when we thought we were initially going to be getting Villeneuve's film. I thought, right, I need to sit down, clear mind, and give Dune another chance. And I did. I think this most recent one is the most I've appreciated the film. No doubt due in part to the fact that I am now more mature as a as a film fan and doing what I've been doing these past couple of years can look at things in a more, I think, maybe objective frame of mind. But there were still problems I had with the film. Some of them were extremely personal to me. You know what the biggest one is, Bill. I just hate whispering on film. I just hate it. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's one of those things that immediately gets my back up and... The, the whispered stream of consciousness or, or thought narration, as I call it, in David Lynch's Doom, I, I just don't react well to it in in a way, you know, the same way as an, as an arachnophobe would react to seeing a spider. It just <laughs> it just gets my back up, which is a shame because it is important because it does get across a lot of stuff, which which we're going to mention now. The fact that Villeneuve's film doesn't employ this sort of narrative device, I think it helped Lynch's film in a lot of ways. It's just unfortunately personal to me. It really kind of grinded my gears quite a lot and it's something I can just never be at ease with. You know, there are some things about the film I absolutely love. 
Uh, they really are. And I'm going to hold off on mentioning too much what they are because I think there's going to be a little bit of relevant comparison when we go on to talk about Villeneuve's film. But, yeah, like I say, the most recent viewing, I, I wanted to like it, Bill, be- because you like it so much or you love the film so much. And I told you on the day I was watching, I said, Bill, I'm going back in, I'm watching Dune. And then we had a very frank and open and honest discussion afterwards. And we were able to discuss it very openly and, and freely and, and without any sort of antagonism because that's what grown-ups do. Unfortunately, I wish people on social media would do this more often. There were things that you said about the film, which I thought, yeah, you know, you're right. And that sort of bolstered my appreciation of it. And, and they were sort of bits of criticism, which I gave, which you were like, yeah, you know, you know, you're right. And because it's not a perfect film. It's far from a perfect film. And, you know, Lynch himself has said that it's a least favourite of his films. But like you, Bill, and as you know, I think I mentioned alongside Neil on our 1990 episode, I'm not a David Lynch fan. The only other David Lynch film that I can ever say I like is The Elephant Man. That's a good one. It's which a I think is a masterpiece. I really do. I think it's yeah. David Lynch's best film by far. But the film I enjoy most after The Elephant Man is Dune. Although still not a film I love because there are things about it. I think in a way, I want Dune to be better. And that's no reflection on Lynch because I know that you know the problems he had with the studio and, and making the film. I just wish that he'd been given $80 million and a lot more resources. I almost feel like, and certainly in the, the latter portion of the film, as if a lot of the story seems really, really truncated and sort of crammed in. You know, having not read the books here, is, is that right? Because it, it seems to me as if it rushes towards an ending. Yeah, in fact, everything that Villeneuve does in the entire part one, I would say uh, the original 84 Dune takes almost two-thirds of his runtime to get to that point. Yeah. And it almost sprints to the last 35 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's almost like that becomes montage, almost like a Thelma Schoonmacher edited montage of the end of Dune with this big boffo set piece. And I, I can't wait to, frankly, I can't wait to see what Villeneuve does with the big set piece at the end of Dune. Yeah. Again, you're definitely not wrong about that. That is a valid criticism. It's not one that ever bothered me. and But it is almost like because I have become a Dune evangelist, mm-hmm. uh, my, my messages are, are frequently filled with a lot of nerd friends asking me or saying, hey, I'm going to watch this. You know, our, our, our mutual friend Moose Matson, the, the inimitable, enormous Moose Matson watched mm-hmm. Dune, I think, seriously just because of, of my uh, full-throated attestations about it. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad a guy like that watched it. But then, you know, what I'm open for is that, well, he's going to come back at me at the end and say, well, here's the reasons why either I did like it or I didn't like it. And it, it's cool. And it's like, it's fine. I think everybody's opinions, I, I generally, everyone I know who's going to talk about film has a good head on their shoulders. And they're not wrong. It's just the question of, well, why don't those things bother me? You know, like uh, uh, everything you're saying is absolutely correct about the breakneck pace that it, 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 it maybe it falls down a hill and tumbles uncontrollably like Jason um, Patrick's father on the steps at the end of uh, Exorcist. Um, However, I just appreciate where each of those steps were along the way. I think speed or no, I like the choices that Lynch made. And of course, if he had more money, you would have gotten another 25 minutes or so, which is, you know, going back to you talk about the Smithy cut of the original Dune. And, you know, I'm not going to be labor. We're not talking about the 84 Dune much more. But but the, the longer cuts of Dune are almost three hours. They're in excess of three hours. And those really do the job. That's the thing. The theatrical cut is fine, but the Dune really breathes and opens when you get away from David Lynch's cut, when you get to the studio cut. There's even more footage of 84 Dune that didn't make the Smithy cut. And people have put together fan cuts that have survived on YouTube, and they are superlative. They are stellar fan cuts. 
that do all sorts of great things uh, that I didn't even know the footage existed and other char characters' arcs get to close and you get more decompressed scenes and you get things that are really important that Villanueva is focusing on in his version that David Lynch had to, had to cut out for his theatrical. And so, I mean, I almost feel like the true gauge of Lynch's version is one of the unauthorized bootleg cuts, either the Smithy TV cut or one of the like Spice Divers fan cut. It's just mesmerizing. Uh, see, there you go. You've you've answered that perfectly for me then, Bill, because, like I said, I wanted more from the film. Yeah. I always felt as if I was seeing kind of like a truncated story. And certainly it does, you know, in, in the latter half of the film, it, it feels like the story's rushed. When you add more to a film, and let's look at the Lord of the Rings films, for example, I know a lot of people are more than happy with the theatrical versions, but I will always favour, for the most part, the extended cuts, certainly for the, yeah. of the first two films. Yeah, um, sure. The, the, the only stuff in those films that I would remove are certain parts which are added in the extended cut of Return of the King. Otherwise, I will happily take every single additional scene in the first two films and most of the stuff in the third film, which I think in total is actually, when you look at across the course of that trilogy, that's two hours That's two hours and one minute of footage which they added back into those films. And I'll take it all because what it does is, even though it bumps the length of the films up by you know, anywhere from 30, just over 30 minutes for the first film to, I think, is it 50 odd minutes? For, uh, the, at at the, least. For the third film? Yeah. I'll back you up by saying I believe that the Two Towers. Two Towers is 42 minutes longer, I believe. The for, for, to, to Two Towers, the indispensable version of the Two Towers, and I'll stake my semi-professional reputation, has to be the extended cut. Yes. I think that that, that movie has to exist as the, the breathing free, loosen its belt after a mm. large meeting version of that that's how that movie should exist because that that's what serves as a yeah. pivot point between the, the first movie and the third movie absolutely yeah. that's right and sometimes when you when you add more to a film you pad out those action scenes and that, that's really important because when i look at some of my favorite films and, and some of those films will be action heavy films a lot of my favorite moments in those films are not action scenes they are the character moments and in doing so, by padding out the... And certainly what I want to see from Dune is, is stuff that gets me more familiar with these characters. Certainly in, a, in an adaptation of a book which is so rich with character and history and stuff. If the extra stuff is going to give me that information I need to know more confidently what is going on with this story, then yeah, that's what I want. And it worked for me with Lord of the Rings. doesn't always work. Sometimes less is more. And I will always favour the theatrical cut of Apocalypse Now over the Redux and the other versions. Mm -hmm. That's just extra stuff that doesn't add to the film. Granted, there's one or two scenes that do, but on the whole, give me the theatrical cut any day. That, that is how I feel about David Lynch's Dune. But what I will say, without giving too much away about what I'm going to say about Villeneuve's film, having watched that recently, I really now do want to go back and re-watch Lynch's film, even though I only watched it a couple of months ago. Let's move on to Villeneuve's film. So, like a lot of big screen releases in the wake of the pandemic, it's been delayed several times. But now that we finally have it, albeit, as we've recently found out and had confirmed, this is part one of two, what was your level of expectations going this, into this film based on what we knew about it and Villeneuve's pretty sterling reputation as a filmmaker so far? Yeah, I think the latter of what you're, what you're describing there is the important part. I thought the market was going to fail us, but I wasn't going to hold that against uh, Villeneuve at all. And I mean, there are very few people playing the game at his level where you, they, there's somebody that goes to bat every single time. You know, Marty has this reputation. I guess Nolan has this reputation. There's a couple of these people, um, even Bigelow to some degree, you know, where these people, everything they make is, is really them. 
they're getting a chance to acquit their vision every single time. And I haven't loved all of Vino's movies, but I always know I'm watching them. I know I'm watching his films. I mean, Sicario is fantastic. And I can't believe Sicario is a film by the same director as Arrival, you know, which is the same director as Enemy and so on and so forth. These are, you know, just wild variations on a theme. You know, there is definitely something very serious and somber about his filmmaking, but his subjects, what he chooses to make a movie about each time is wild. Now, I thought when they announced that, uh, you know, you remember, by the way, who the other other guys who were rumored to be doing this movie over the years have been let's go through a list right because we have pete berg was supposed to be Bat, pete battleship berg pete marky mark Wahlberg berg was supposed to be doing a version of dune i want to say around 2008 or 2007 and that was in real development you know that was that was going for a while and then berg backed out of it i want to say around 2010 when it looked like it was really dead and then a guy named pierre morel who I think directed Taken, if I'm not mistaken. He was supposed to be, the Dune project wound up in his lap. And who the hell knows how serious that was. But it's like, this is, this is, when you start mentioning Peter Berg doing Dune, this makes me feel like, okay, you know what? This is not the, I don't need this, honestly, and you can let this go. When they start mentioning Villeneuve's name, it's like, oh, wait a second. Uh, you just pulled out a, a rabbit out of a hat. Uh, there's no way I can say no to this movie. Also, I'm fairly certain that no matter what we get from this guy, it's going to be fucking sterling. This is going to be a crazy-ass movie. But it was never going to hold what the market, you know, especially with people still fighting over Dune, people still shitting over it, uh, memeing about it for years and years and years. Um, you know, what's something they call on the internet called siege posting, which of course is a, a, a funny joke on the word shit posting. Dune is one of these things that people have made jokes of for years, and it's like, okay, well, maybe human beings just aren't ready for it. But this movie is going to be great no matter what we get from this guy he's going to come up with some vision he's going to synthesize what's important about this from him you know of course blade runner was fantastic 2049 was incredible you know and it's like the, the people squandered that they weren't ready for it they did not make it a hit i don't hold that against Villeneuve. i don't hold his vision was incredible i thought that was a beautiful film and i thought this really sets this, the table for something wonderful that's going to hit our lap and then of course time and time again it gets pushed back it gets pushed back by natural disaster so we've been primed for a long time people have had a lot of time to to expect to anticipate to chatter to talk and, and to wait so I think imaginations have just sort of been flooded in one way or another with a lot of uh, you know thoughts of what Dune was going to be. Let's let's go back to another helpful comparison with Lord of the Rings. Then Peter Jackson in you know the late '90s when they first started shooting and production on that film in in '99, he was given the keys to the kingdom literally. He was given hundreds of millions of dollars. He was put in a position that no other director had been put in before, where he was given incredible resources, and, and as it turns out enough talent and resources to put on screen a book or a series of books which people thought were pretty much unfilmable that has to be you know the ultimate success story of adapting anything really because a coup a, a coup yes absolutely indisputably but you look at the runner that peter jackson had before that and i'm not going to count stuff like bad taste and brain dead let's look at his actual legitimate theatrical runner to that heavenly creatures and the frighteners Yes. And then he's pretty much given everything. Yeah? Those, those, <laughs> those, those yes, two yes. films. That's all it took. You have a look at Villeneuve's runner before Dune. Just let's look at his English language stuff. You've got Prisoners in 2013 and Enemy. 2015, you've got Sicario. Then you've got Arrival 2016. You've got Blade Runner 2049, 2017. And then he's given Dune. You know, let's just look at those five films first off. It, like you say, Sicario absolutely superb arrival I, I i missed arrival theatrically i only actually saw arrival maybe early this year actually i think it was one of my ah. sort of um lockdown catch-up films 
talk about perfect thought-provoking science fiction that isn't predictable it isn't formulaic it's adult it is just everything that you know you want from a, a, a good science fiction film and then you've got Blade Runner 2049 and I've mentioned also on this podcast my love for the original 82 Blade Runner it's a film that I never wanted a sequel to I was a little bit reluctant going in the only saving grace was the fact that it was Villeneuve at the helm there as it turns out I think as good a sequel to Blade Runner as you could reasonably hope for me personally going into this I thought I can't think of a more adept and and worthy director to be given Dune a lot of people said, oh yeah, this is maybe something that should have been given to the likes of Christopher Nolan. I don't like any comparisons with Villeneuve and Nolan. I think that Nolan was a director that was heading in the same sort of direction as Villeneuve. And unfortunately, as I've mentioned before, I'm not going to go into again. He's gone way off track. I think it's a case of the Emperor's New Clothes. I don't think he's anywhere near as good a storyteller as he thinks he is or as he wants us to think he is. But Villeneuve, in those films I've mentioned so far, the sort of run-up to Doom, I don't really think he's put a foot wrong. And I think those films really, certainly with Sicario Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, they've kind of hit a peak that I thought, yeah, give him the keys to the kingdom now, give him Dune. You know, if anything, I was actually kind of worried that I thought that the, again, not worried about him, but worried about the reception of the market, worried about the vagaries of audiences and, you know, all the weird shit that can happen along the way. I, in a way, I kind of wish that he had um, at the beginning, it's like, no, maybe you should do your own thing. Um, I appreciate that he was remaking, he was doing a Blade Runner sequel and he was doing a Dune remake along the way. But I'd almost wish it's like, you know what, Sicario, you got to make your own stuff. It's like if, if he was one of these guys that had the ability to maintain a pure vision where he was creating this real uh, self-generated stuff. I hope he gets back to that someday. You know, this, this was my thinking, I guess, in 2018 when it was uh, announced, you know, just, just hoping that he, he gets to maintain this pure in his, his career along the way he's all in this movie he's 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 invested himself it's definitely his vision so i mean I, I can't complain about that and it looks like he's fairly happy with it too so this doesn't seem to be an an unpopular experience much the same way it was for lynch working with the de Laurentiis back in in 83 in mexico city so what were your thoughts then when the initial cast was announced um, well, I had just seen, I think I'd seen Lady Bird, the Greta Gerwig movie mm-hmm. with um, Saoirse Ronan. And right on the heels of that, that might have been all it took to get Chalamet uh, pushed into the big leagues, because I think it was maybe two months after I'd seen that at New York Film Festival, they announced him as Paul Atreides. And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I only know this kid from one movie. However, he's the buzzy choice. He is the age. He's not going to get any younger. It, it can't be Tom Holland. You know, there, there's there's only a few guys who were, were um, kind of slight, like he was, that play the boy, that have the chops to do so, and that have the marquee look to be mm. able to hang a movie on. Uh, something that will break him into a leading man, if you want to think about it. Even though I'm not really sure there are leading men these days, except for Chris Evans. But you know, that's that's a different uh, that's a different argument. So that that was great. That was fantastic. And granted, you need a lot of emphasis on who Paul Atreides is going to be because the whole movie hangs on him. Granted, there are other charismatic characters along the way, as everybody knows now. But Paul Atreides means a whole lot. 
And, you know, the only misgivings I had is that he wasn't McLaughlin again, because I've just been revering McLaughlin's image of Paul Atreides since 84, since pretty much his invention, whole cloth on film, since David Lynch reached into a, a grotto somewhere and pulled out this young 22-year-old Washington State native who was absolutely perfect for David Lynch movies, but maybe not so much for other ones in his career. But I'm, I'm glad that David Lynch found him and exploited him that way. And, you know, after that, Lido Atreides, Oscar Isaac has been great. We've loved him since he sort of popped. The first time, first place I saw him was in Drive, and he had a very small role. Um, and he's just been on the steady ascent, doing all this incredible inside Lewin Davises and Ex Machinas and whatnot. He's, he's, he's on a great role. Rebecca Ferguson, I hadn't really seen a lot of her either. I saw her as Rose the Hat in uh, that um, The Shining sequel, Dr. Mm -hmm. Sleep, and did not like that movie, but I can see... You know, people love her in those Mission Impossible films. She's got the right look. She might be a one-to-one -one correlative of Francesca Annis if you want to pull that out of your ass and say, well, who is somebody that has that same sort of ethereal royal air that Francesca Annis had back in the old days? And it's like, yeah, that's a really good choice for Jessica. So on and so forth. Who else could play the bad guy these days other than Stellan Skarsgård? I mean, you, you could definitely dip in and find people. You weren't going to get John Leguizamo to do it. Their first choice was going to be a guy like Stellan Skarsgård, you know, the, the premier chronicler of otherworldly creeps and pedophiles and whatnot. But, you know, that's also good casting. You know, Kenneth McMillan was more the oddball choice back in 83, but... You know, he's he's almost right up more up the middle now, Stellan Skarsgård. So I think, you know, once you start knocking down a couple of those roles, they were very careful in casting this movie. And I think they made excellent decisions for the type of film that Villeneuve had in mind, the, the, the style of adaptation, the theme, the temperature that he was going for. I think these were the correct actors to go with. So going back then to Chalamet, do you think he nailed it as Paul Atreides? Because obviously his being the most important role in these two films... I, I'm not, you know, it's, it's funny because I'm not going to say I'm sure he nailed it yet. Much like, you know, my review of the movie, in the, my review of the first movie, I left a sort of ellipses at the end to say, I can't give a full review for this movie until uh, Vino closes the deal. I've, I'm going to treat this as one film in total. I think that there is there is part of something in the first movie that he gets across when he closes, I should say, when slash if he closes the deal and he becomes Muad'Dib, he becomes the character he's supposed to by the end of the film. I think he, in, in the end, will do something eventually that Kyle MacLachlan did not do in the first film. Because Kyle MacLachlan, you know, plays an arc, but he has the same performance almost from the beginning to the end of the movie. I think that Chalamet is going to give us something very different. I think he's going to change physically. I think he's going to change emotionally. I think he's going to, everything about him, I think, is you're going to see a different version of this actor in the second film. And to be honest, that's what I'm really looking forward to, is to seeing that, what do they do with the two-year gap in production? What does Chalamet do with his body? What does Chalamet do with his physicality to give you the other half of Paul Atreides? So it's, it's kind of a conditional. It's like a blinking cursor. I think he did great. But I do think what we're going to get is going to say way more than we have right now. Well, you, you mentioned Francesca Annis in, in Lynch's film, and she is one of my favorite things about that film. Oh, yeah. But then I am also very much a member of the Ferguson fan club. I think she is outstanding. I thought she was amazing in Doctor Sleep. I thought she was great in the Mission Impossible films. I even fell in love with her in The Greatest Showman. I thought she was fantastic. <laughs> she had me convinced that that was her singing. When I found out that it wasn't, I was, I was gutted. Uh, who else have we got? Oscar Isaac. Really, has he put a foot wrong lately? One important thing. I, I do have to put you on the spot, Bill. Jason yeah. Momoa or Richard Jordan? Pick one. Easy. Uh, I'm going to go with Momoa for this one. And not only will I go from... I will not only go from Momoa in this one. I will say that... I haven't heard anybody say this, but I think that this is Momoa's 
look, he's been in a bunch of shit now. We've seen him in genre stuff for a good number of years now. I think this is his thing. I think this is the moment where Momoa, to me, said he knows how to do the gig. He knows how to act. And somebody actually got to him and directed him in a way that he understood and gave a modulated performance. Mm. Not to say he wasn't good in other things, but I do feel like this is Momoa's arrival. I'm not trying to be patronizing about the guy because, you know, he's been doing high level work for a while. But this is different. And yes, I'm a big Richard Jordan fan. Big Richard Jordan fan. Loved him in The Friends of Eddie Coyle. That guy has got depth and range, and we lost him too young. I don't think he was even at his 40s when he had his fatal heart attack in the early 90s. But I think Jason Momoa gives you a Duncan Idaho that, um, you know, whether people listening know this or not, Duncan Idaho turns out to be one of the most important characters, not just in this book, but in all of the books. I'll leave that uh, off the table there. And I think that Duncan Idaho, Villeneuve directed him in such a way to get him to realize that. I think that's really cool. There's something cool going on there. In, in the days since I've watched the film, I've prior to that, I avoided pretty much every review. I think bar James Hancock's, his first review, which was spoiler-free, but I, I didn't want anyone else's opinion on the film, apart from James's and people like yourself who we've had vague chats about the film and just about your general feelings about it on, on, on like a positive or, or negative point of view. But I, I've seen in the day since a lot of reviewers saying, and it seems as if it's like the sort of default attitude when it comes to an actor like Jason Momoa, the, the fact that he just turns up, does his usual sort of dude bro thing where, you know, he's the kind of cool, suave kind of, um, you know, charmer, you know, you know the character injects a bit of wink at the camera humor into things. I just don't think that's fair, certainly not in, in this film. You know, they, they gave him the role of Aquaman and I, I think that is one of the most successful DC films because it just completely embraces, you know, without any sort of guilt or without any sort of embarrassment, you know, how absurd a concept it is. He was the perfect actor for that character, I think. Yeah. But I think in this film, he really surprised me with yes, there, there was a, you know a, almost a sort of hint of that sort of um, charming exuberance that the guy has got. But I, I think he gave something to that character that I and this is no slight against Richard Jordan, who I think was a fantastic actor. But I think he just gave Duncan Idaho a little bit more and made him more memorable than the character of Duncan from Lynch's film. And yeah, you know, I was sorry to see him go. Again, spoilers, but, you know, we're going to assume that you have seen this film. And if not, please turn us off, go and watch it, then come back and listen to us. You know, I, I wanted to see more of him in a way, but also felt that in comparison to some of the other characters, I do think we saw enough of him. Because obviously you've got a lot of characters, it's difficult to balance them. But yeah, I, I think Momoa was perfectly fine. Yeah, not only that, there, there's this thing about uh, Duncan Idaho, you know, in the book. And again, this is a decision, a, a different decision that Villeneuve makes that Lynch does goes in another direction. And again, uh, Richard Jordan is barely in the movie. He's there for, I think, three scenes and that's yeah. about it. Um, he's fairly not he's not that important. He just winds up looking like a scout, essentially. That's all they wind up using him for. But Momoa's character invests this sense of almost like being an uncle to Paul Atreides. There's this familial effort, which, you know, in all of in, in the book, Herbert goes through great pains to describe how important personally all of these characters are. They're almost all in little bits and pieces, fathers mm. to Paul Atreides. They've all they've each been responsible for a different part of his soul. Two for how it gives him this sort of um analytic sense, this, you know, this this cold precision. And uh, Duncan Idaho gives him his ability, this passion and this ability to sort of fight, it's flourish. And Gurney Halleck gives him his toughness, his determination, his, his will. 
And his father, Leto Atreides, his biggest idol, gives Paul Atreides this sense of pride, this sense of stalwart responsibility, of duty, of burden, of um, you know serving your great house and serving people and being a good leader. Each of these things is very important along the way. They build part of his soul. And I think Momoa really bought into that. He plays paternal. He plays avuncular really well in a way we just haven't seen him do before. Mm, yeah. Are there any characters you felt were kind of given short shrift? Because I have heard talk about the fact that um, Stephen McKinley Henderson's character of Thurfa Howard was just, we didn't see enough of him and he's far more of an important character in the books. Yes, and like that, I think that he will wind up playing a, a bigger part later on. Yeah. Of course, he was barely introduced. Yeah, there's two characters, I would say. You don't get a lot of Peter DeVries who, you know, look, through, through no fault of my own, I'm bewitched by, by Brad Dourif my entire life. And so it's really hard to step into the, not necessarily the shoes, but the portrayal of that character and distinguish. And David Desmouchian does as good a job. I'm sure there's more footage on the ground. I, yeah. I guarantee you that there'll be more of him, but you really don't, you, they don't even mention Peter DeVries by name. You know, they, they don't name check him at all which is too bad but even more important than that to be honest is dr yui uh and i have to imagine there is more yui on the cutting room floor too but wellington yui is super important and he has a relationship with paul and you know the he's the prime mover for everything that happens i mean you've really got to buy into wellington yui's story in order to get to where you need to by the end of dune part one yeah no he was he was dean stockwell's character wasn't he in the first film and so yes, in the sir, he yeah. was. Yeah. And, you know, Dean Stockwell does different things for Lynch than he did in the rest of his career. And talk about a really oddball, bizarre performer. You know, Dean Stockwell was a child actor going back to the, Jesus, I guess the 40s and the 50s. But he did something really interesting for Dune, uh, for, for, for Lynch in Dune, in that he almost gave you the same icy, cold, modulated, austere performance that Lynch asks from his actors. Uh, Jack Nance can do those similar things, too. Brad Dourif is, is an old hand. Kyle MacLachlan, these actors know how to respond to Lynch, which is why Lynch's actors, his rep of actors, are incredible in the original Dune. Just like I would say that Villeneuve's rep of actors, the guys he's worked with in the past between Brolin and, and, and Dave Bautista, know exactly what to give him because he can speak their language. And I love seeing stuff like that. I love actors. When, when directors bring their, their stock company from movie to movie, uh, it looks great. And that's, like, of course, David Lynch had Dean Stockwell to give more life in the character in a small part into Wellington Dewey that Chen, uh, was it Chen Chang, I think his name is, who, who played... Yeah, and it's like he just didn't have the room. No, uh, Chang Chen. Chang Chen, sorry. Yeah. Uh, he just didn't have the room to do it. But it, it's it's almost, it's, I don't say unqualified. It's definitely more important than what the how much room he got on screen. There's a lot going on that did not get the chance to get illustrated. And, I mean, I, again, I hope we see more in the extended version. Yeah. Uh, what about Josh Brolin's character, Gurney Halleck, which was played by Patrick Stewart in uh, in Lynch's film? Because he seems to me as if, it's like as if Paul's got three fathers. He's, he's got Duke Leto, his own father. Then he's got Gurney, and then, obviously, Duncan Idaho. Well, you know, it's funny because Patrick Stewart was perhaps the most wrong of wrong choices <laughs> in the universe. And yet he somehow grabs that part with his hands and his, his long hair and his stentorian line readings and turns his portrayal of Gurney Halleck into something that it could never have been in the book. It is the complete antithesis of the roughneck, savage, you know, pit fighter who will bite your thumb off if, if you're grappling with him in a tussle. Josh Brolin is exactly the kind of guy that, that he probably, that Frank Herbert probably envisioned playing the part. 
However, there's something so compelling and so Shakespearean and so stentorian about Patrick Stewart. He effortlessly commands the screen in one of his first great performances that drew the eye to him. You know, that not that he wasn't in Excalibur, not that he wasn't in all these movies, life force along the way, but that was like his real first lean forward moment. But I mean, Brolin looks the part. Brolin is the guy he describes who got out of the Giddy Prime slave pits. He looks like he did those things. It's easy to believe all that backstory with, with Josh Brolin. Talking about the comparison then between those two characters and, and maybe more importantly, those two actors, given the fact that Patrick Stewart is this you know Shakespearean, highly trained thesp, do you think that at some point later on in this story, certainly in the second film, Josh Brolin will be able to ably carry into battle a pug dog. <laughs> uh, you know, if if they somehow do a little fan service, which I'm not exactly sure that Vianu is going to do that. I yes, he can totally not lose any masculinity or credibility by throwing a little pug under his arm. What was sure. that all about? Why was Patrick Stewart carrying a pug? <laughs> I just have to assume that the people want to know the dog was okay. It's just, you know, sometimes when you kill the dog, it loses some audience members. So maybe that was just uh, making sure people weren't, you know, there's plenty of violence and eye gouging, but don't kill the dog for Christ's sake. Were there any casting choices that you didn't like or that, that, that were less than what you were expecting? Huh, that's interesting. You know, I thought in a way... I can't complain about Skarsgård, but Skarsgård is such a 101 actor for playing bad guys. And to, to be honest now, it's like I'm almost more interested in this point where Skarsgård plays comedy and light frivolous roles like Mamma Mia, because that to me seems more dangerous tightrope than him playing the bad guy in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo or in some Lars von Trier movie. He's such a solid performer, but his Swedish growl and his weird indeterminate accent and the way he is able to... Just, uh, again, effortlessly command the camera with this this boiling intensity that he just turn, he, really turns it on or off. He's just one of these actors, again, like fellow Swede, Max von Sydow, permanently enigmatic. Uh, just, you know, you put Max von Sydow in anything, that part is just watch Max von Sydow for whatever time he's on the screen. He steals a picture. And so, again, it's hard to complain because he gave us a really, really good Baron without a lot of screen time. But, you know, we saw what Ken McMillan does. Ken McMillan, New York City native, Brooklyn native, trained stage actor, you know, hundreds and hundreds of hours on the boards in New York and Los Angeles. And, you know, mostly had done supporting roles at that point in movies like Pelham 123 and Serpico and all these things. And being given the chance to play this enormous bad guy no one had ever seen in pop culture, it's a, it's an invention. It's a wholesale revelation. It's an invention. And that could be a surprise. But Stellan Skarsgård being a magnificent baron isn't a surprise. It's exactly what you expect him to do now, I'd say, for the last 15 years, because this is par for the course. So, I mean, I'm, I, it's backhanded praise. I, ju I was just saying it's like, you know, I'm not trying to defame it or anything like that. Just that it's kind of what you expected. That is the only sort of formulaic choice we had along the way. See, now this is where you really surprised me. Because looking back at the video that you did about Ken McMillan for your American yes. Caesar salad series on, on YouTube, which was, um, I think that was one of the catalysts for me actually to re-watch Doom. Right? Yes. Early this year or wherever it was, maybe the tail end of last year. But this is one of my, I, I'd say maybe biggest problems with this film. And it's a problem that's twofold. First off, I don't think Stellan Skarsgård's character, his characterization, the performance, and the overall feeling I got about the Baron is anywhere near as effective as Ken McMillan's in the original film. Mm -hmm. Seeing that at a young age, as much as I didn't really gel with the film, 
there's one thing that I will never forget. I, it goes back to something else. When I was a child, uh, for one Christmas, I was given two of these um, sort of kind of glossary kind of kids storybooks, which were big on pictures with a little bit of blurb, a bit of writing at the bottom. And one Christmas, it must have been Christmas of 84, I had Dune and Return of the Jedi. They stayed with me until probably my early... Well, in fact, you know, I may actually still have them packed away somewhere. And I, I would thumb through them. And this was, you know, before I saw Dune, there, there were images in that book which I would like to see in the film, which stayed with me forever. And one of them is Baron Harkonnen, played by Ken McMillan. And he is just one of the most disgusting, repugnant, on-screen villains I think I've ever seen. He, he likes to bathe in the blood of these kind of young men, which I don't even understand why he's, he's sort of doing that to himself, what he gets from <laughs> it, right? When he's having all that pus removed from his, his boils, it, it's hideous, it's repugnant, but it's all stuff that we're seeing in a PG-13 rated film. Yes, Fast forward all of these years now to 2021, we've still got a PG-13, or, or if in the UK, a 12A rated film. And certainly when it related to the Baron and certain other aspects of the film, I really do think that the characterization and how he was depicted on screen really felt toned down, muted, and, and toothless. There was just nothing anywhere near as disgusting. It really did surprise me. And when later on in the film, after Duke Leto cracks that poisonous tooth, and seemingly looks like he's killed the Baron. Then we later find the Baron has survived, and then he's in that sort of like mucky kind of oil bath. I was genuinely expecting him to come up from that all hideous and, and burnt as if he's got like chemical burns all over him. And then at that point, I would have been like, yes, you've got me. I'm in. Oh, I like that. You know what? I haven't considered that, but that is a great punch-up. I could definitely see that. But when it didn't, I felt like, well, what have you given us here? And then that then fed into the overall tone of the film and the fact that even the pain box where Paul is being tested and he puts his hand in that box. Going back to Lynch's film, I'm actually feeling searing pain and flesh burning. I know that these are like kind of thoughts which I think are going through um, Paul's head. But even in that scene, it wasn't anywhere near as disturbing as similar films I've seen in in other in other films, like the, you know the the one in Flash Gordon where they. They're putting their, you know, getting people to put wow. their arm in, into that kind of like sort of weird tree stump thing, and is there's that creature yes, inside? Uh, pl- Planet Arborea. In Arborea, with the, yeah, with the, obviously um, the, Timothy Dalton's the character. Of the board, yes, all the above. Yes. Now you feel the pain, and the fact that when that when I think it's Peter Duncan's character is there on the floor with his hand being stung, he's he's, he's asking them to kill him because he's in so much pain. I didn't get any of that in this. Well, all right, you know, it, 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 I think it's all a valid concern. It's a valid point. It is a good, it is good criticism, and yet it's it's one that I knew specifically we weren't going to get that. And you know what you're describing perfectly is Lynch's own form of body horror, which mm. he has never shied away from. No. Whether it is Nicolas Cage beating the brains out of some dude in Wild at Heart. Or if it's the elephant man, or if it's the little goofy-looking fucking baby alien from from Eraserhead, you know Lynch has in that same Cronenbergian way, he knows his way around the dementations of the flesh, you know, the the mortification yeah. of the human body, and whether he uses a little bit of it or a lot of it, he taps into it much more organically. Again, I don't think there's a lot of hot-blooded passion, but that doesn't mean it doesn't make your skin cold. Weird things. Dune is filled with body horror from end to end. I mean, in ways that you're right, there's one of the things that people, you know, they talk about that PG-13 movie. It's not that you can't make a PG-13 movie, a Star Wars for kids out of Dune. It's just that the things that Lynch invented for it, whether it was Baron Harkonnen's boils and his, you know, these these plugs that are implanted into his flesh as he's 
walking in this sort of encased suit that is wrapped around his gooey, you know, his gooey, sweaty flesh mm. and all the weird shit along the heart plugs. You know, there's all these weird things that are Lynch knew. I need to amp this up. I need to put this real biological body horror. I need to, everyone needs to suspect their flesh along the way. And it needs to feel gross. Yeah. And the most you get from the Baron Harkonnen in this one, again, I think it's, I think it's a great performance that Skarsgård gives. However, it's really, in a way, he's just a grotesque. He just looks like a fat, gigantic, amoral, antisocial robber baron. You know, he's based on Steve Bannon or one of these guys. He could be someone horrible that you know from life, as opposed to Macmillan, who created a character that you don't know from life. He is an unknown quantity. He is Brundlefly, yeah. something just insane that ricocheted out of a, hum- a madman's brain. And you're not gonna you're not gonna get that in this movie, but you're gonna get something very different from Villeneuve. Maybe then it goes back to the fact that I've maybe got a tie to the original, or to Lynch film as being the only version of Duna that I've ever witnessed. I've not read the books, I've not seen any of the subsequent adaptations, the, you know, the 2000 miniseries, I've, I've not seen any of that. So all I've got to compare it to is Lynch's Dune. And then when something so effective and done so well as Macmillan's performance in that film, is it, I can't avoid it. it. It's just a, a comparison that I can't help but make, and I really do feel as if that was the main signpost that's telling me that this is a slightly toothless version. And again, this could be stuff that is more in tune with the books and is more in keeping with Frank Herbert's books. Mm-hmm. In, in which case, that's down to me then, and I'm wrong. But I still feel as if, and I do understand that this film had to be PG-13, certainly in the current climate. They had to make sure they had to maximize ticket sales, and if they were to go for an R rating, then that was going to mean that less people were going to be able to see it. And yes, this film needs to make as much money as possible. But then when you look at the fact that Lynch's film is a PG-13 and does all of that horrific stuff and gets away with it, and films are still graded today on the same basis that they were years ago. If you know the MPAA or the BBFC look at you know new versions of Dune, which like Arrow Video have just put out an incredible you know reissue of the film, it's still given the same rating as it was years ago, unless additional content is put in, which bumps the film up. And I certainly know that the BBFC have got a very strict policy that no two same versions of the same film. So you could have a film released on VHS and then on DVD. If the film is exactly the same, then the BBFC will give it exactly the same rating because they're duty-bound to do that. They can't have films with different, you know, the same film with different rating across different formats. So if they're still yeah. deeming that 84 Dune is the, is the same rating as it's always been, then surely this film could have got away with a bit more. And I really do wish, in the same way, and I, and I know I, I fired a shot across Christopher Nolan's bow earlier, but I spent two and a half hours a few years ago with Neil singing the praises of the dark. Night and the way he pushes the PG 13 rating in that film is, is to be applauded. I just wish Villeneuve had done it here so it wasn't veering closer to that sort of family friendly thing because I just think if you do an adult sci fi, you're not really going to be catering to that sort of um, early teens audience. There's no need to. You don't want to alienate them, obviously, but I think if yeah. you get away with it, you know, kids want to see gore, they want to see stuff like that. I've got a 10 year old just hankering and, and just begging me to let him watch films like Halloween and Predator and, and God knows what. And he's 10 years old. <laughs> I know what I was like when I was his age. I wanted more, I wanted more yeah. gore, I wanted to push the boundaries. I just think that's the one aspect of this film that I think most irked me when I was watching it was the fact that it did feel a little bit neutered and a little bit toughless. 
Well, Villeneuve is a very tidy director. I think he's he works fairly cleanly. Um, I mean, he, I will tell you the most outrageous thing that I can conjure in his movie, and, and to be honest, it's legit outrageous. It's it's something that really creeped me out when I saw Sicario. There's that scene where they go to the house, and the house's walls are filled yes. with dried, mummified corpses. Yeah. That is not it's not nothing I haven't ever seen in films before, but it added. I didn't expect to see that in the middle of this cartel. Like, oh, okay, we have a cartel movie going on here, and so we're not just going to tell a simple cartel story. It's like, no, there's going to be some legit, weird, strange s. You know, again, mortification of the flesh that bordered on Clive Barker type things, much the same way as the conception of uh, Kenneth McMillan's Baron looks like it was something that came out of Hellraiser or Nightbreed. I mean, quite yeah. literally, a gigantic fat thing you know, with bands and pokes and straps and spikes, you know, flying through the sky, you know, spitting saliva at you as it yells, you know, but it's like, I don't think that's Villeneuve's first impulse. I could see that he gets there every now and then, but his movies tend to be very orderly. You know, that you're not, there's not puddles of pustules and semen and bodily fluids and, you know, cut off arms that you need to really worry about, you know, whereas, I mean, Dune in the book, that is kind of a Herbert works the same way. You know, for Herbert, the the attract Herbert wanted to talk as much about the stock market for for the price of of um, spice and the families who get to govern it and how it actually is moved through the Imperium on giant ships and the technology that actually controls the ships and how they're able to you know what the Mentats do and what the Guild navigators do. He wasn't interested. You know, all the stuff about the Baron having pustules on him that was completely David Lynch yeah. saying no, it needs to be this way. It needs to be gross. There needs to be human flesh and stink and sweat and slime and spittle in this thing. And he added a lot of that good stuff to it. That is essentially what makes 84 a lot more jagged than this version. You're not going to, mm. you know, this this is, you know, I, I, we'll come back to hopefully this later, but his design sense, Villeneuve's design sense, and granted this was steered by an entire studio, so it's not just Villeneuve. Everything is played in large brace uh, granite slabs and or brown ochre dust desert. The color palette is flat and the shapes are flat. They're not really curvilinear. It lacks filigree. It is a very cut stone, um, like you're living inside gigantic pyramids or caves, uh, crypts, uh, mausolea, things like that. And again, that to me is that very clean, uh, orthogonal, beveled style that, you know, Villeneuve wants to live in a ship with spaces that look like giant anvils. They're not round shapes. They're like anvils. So I think there's something top down we're getting from this guy, the orderly way, the almost mathematical precision in which his brain works. Which then leads perfectly onto my next bit of notes here, which is the look of the film. This is probably the one area that I had the kind of most confidence in was the fact that Villeneuve was going to make this film just look jaw dropping. Yeah, and that, there's no doubt about that. His sense of scale, his sense of bigness, um, he has tools to work with that Lynch did not have. I mean, Lynch was all optical with very little. Actually, it was completely optical back in the day. And it's like, I think that the, the job that they did with puppeteering and miniatures and uh, what would they call the gimbal photography, the motion uh, motion control, I forget when you're passing over and doing, um, you know, passes for spaceships and things like that. The command of makeup, they had to do everything practical. And I think it's an amazing movie for it. It it asked them to do something different in 84 down in Mexico City than Villeneuve got to do or was asked to do now. And again, again, the look is unerring, but all the, the look is very muted. The look is very gunmetal. The look is very, it lacks 
filigree. Some of the ships in Lynch's world look like they are almost made out of old clawfoot tubs or like old stoves from Dickensian apartments in, in London. And I like the fact that they, oh, the designs go all over the place in Lynch's world because you got the impression every single royal house had their own aesthetic. In this world, everything looks like Tombstone Spaceship Company made everything. They're great. They're impressive. The scale is enormous. But with the exception of the Ornithopter, you know, which looks like mm -hmm. a Huey Cobra gunship or something like that, the other spaceships, the, the, the Guild Highliner, all those gigantic Atreides house ships, some of those things all look like a giant blur of modernist, brutalist design. It could be buildings that were designed somewhere in, uh, you know, Prague in 1971, you know, gigantic concrete architecture. Mm. It's one aspect of the film where I think overall I, I was just blown away. As I've said before, I've I've got quite a, a good eye for telling apart CG and practical model effect. But in this film, where I strongly suspect we were seeing probably far more models than we would usually, or, or maybe we were just seeing a level of CG effects that has now evolved to the point where they can put sufficient detail in to trick our eyes into actually thinking that we're looking at this sort of exquisite highly detailed model because when all of these things these ships are breaking apart and getting blown up it doesn't portray the eye it does look as if these are actual big huge structures blowing apart like you say about the sense of scale it's done to a remarkable effect you know we haven't mentioned the sandworms you know the design has changed somewhat from the lynch version how, how do you feel about that bill obviously you know the lynch version being your I'm not going to say preferred version but the one you've obviously championed for such a long time is that one of the changes that you think is for the better? Yeah, definitely. And also, I don't think they had a choice. You know, the sandworm, to be to be fair, when you're dealing with something of that scale, I think no matter what you do, if it's done at the proper scale, to me, the detail of the worm would have fell by the wayside a little bit. Mm. I really like Rimbaldi, the the guy who who did E.T., the guy who made... Um, Car Carlo Rimbaldi, yeah. Carlo Rimbaldi, I should yeah. mention his first name. He did Close Encounters of the Third Kind, the Aliens at the end of that. He did the weird creature from Possession of all things, too. Rimbaldi has a long line of uh, creature effects. He's this you know, superlative Italian sculptor. Mm -hmm. And so he did the worms uh, in, in the original Dune. And they, they look like annelids. They're segmented earthworm-type creatures, except they have a tri-fold sort of split mouth that opens in the front into like a three-pocketed structure. But once it opens its mouth, you still have all the, the rows of shiny teeth. You know, the, the ones in Dune, the original Dune 84, had sort of a hiss, a roar to them. That was a pretty digitally synthesized roar. But I mean, this one, it's, you know, a single orifice in the front with, it looked like needles rather than knives, if you want to call mm. them that. And the, the hide looks more like it's hewn out of rock. It looks like it's chiseled out of basalt or something like that. I, I do, I really appreciate it. And to be honest, I was never going to be a stickler for a, a worm purist and mm. say, oh, you got the worm wrong. Um, I'm certainly the character's look would have been more important than the way the worms turned out. But I think they did just fine. Again, we've barely even seen the worm. We've had more or less one handshake so far with the worm. So there's more to go. One of the things I really like is the fact that when you're in close proximity or reasonably close proximity to the worm, the fact that it because it's vibrating the sand so much, it almost liquefies the sand. If you if you're anywhere near it, you start to sink. I thought it was a really cool little touch. Yeah, yeah, that's again a, a type of sensory thing that Lynch could not do and or did not care about or didn't think to do in the original. Yeah. But Villeneuve is all about exactly that kind of detail. And you know, I, I saw I saw this film on a huge screen, and I saw it with Dolby Atmos sound. And I got to say, the sound design in the film is absolutely phenomenal. It helped immerse me in the film, and then coupled with these amazing visuals. But aside from that, what do you think of Hans Zimmer's score for this film? 
You know, I am, again, this is going to be one of those weird things. I'm one of North America's only two or three champions of the Toto score from the original, which was Toto with David Page, who was the keyboardist and one of the chief songwriters for Toto. His father was a Los Angeles um, orchestral arranger named Marty Page. Mm. So he did a lot of the heavy lifting of, of, of orchestrating. You know, Toto wrote the songs, but Marty Page, the older Page, was the one who put them together in sort of orchestral form. I love how weird it is. It's like Prince's soundtrack for uh, Batman. The stuff that didn't happen, that stuff that wasn't uh, Danny Elfman, that all the pop songs from Prince, you know, this weird fusion should work, but it does. That stuff is pretty cool. But I mean, I love Toto's theme. You know, Hans Zimmer does this thing where you get his brand. And I know that the, the anticlimax is like, well, who else are you going to get? Are you going to get Andre Desplat? I mean, who's left at this game uh, at this level in the game who could give you a gigantic package. I mean, my problem with Hans Zimmer is that he doesn't write John Williams type themes. Not that he has to. He has a, uh, a an aesthetic that he comes in. You know, it's much like the spaceships in this movie and the, the interiors. It is gray. It is granite. It is cold. It is heavy. It is brutalist. It is thumping. It is impressive. It is loud. It is awe-inspiring. It is great. And it complements the movie. Do I think it is the best choice? Do I think it is the only choice? No, but it certainly was the safest choice and probably the only one he was going to get away with. Just as, you know, the DP of this movie either had to be Greg Fraser or um, Brad Deacons. It could either, Deacons, you know, like yeah. it was going to be, yeah, one of those two guys. At this level, you don't leave things to chance. And so there's only a couple of people who they're going to give a spot like this. I mean, who the hell was it going to give it? Michael Giacchino? Who could have, honestly, who could have nailed Dune? Whatever it's supposed to sound like, I think Hans Zimmer is the guy you expect to make it sound like what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah, I think these days we do, simply because we're always used to films like this. Hans Zimmer being the go-to guy. And as I've said before, he frustrates the hell out of me. He's proven with films like Terence Malick's The Thin Red Line that he can make one of the greatest film scores of all time. I think the film score to that is just absolute perfection. It's just wondrous, magical stuff. But he then can be put in charge of doing the music for a film such as Interstellar, where he does not know how to take his foot off the brakes, and he basically <laughs> puts so much overwrought, amped up. So it, you know, there's entire scenes in that film where it, it's like as if he's fallen asleep on the keyboard, and I am literally just screaming at the screen, saying, why, why does every scene in a film have to be given this music, giving it this sort of feeling of grandeur and importance. And he does it here, but he does it to a far more subdued extent and at no point. Well, with Inter- Interstellar, he really, uh, I would say, outright swiped Philip Glass. He sounded like mm. John Adams. He was swiping that minimalist thing to the point where that trilling all throughout Interstellar was like, is this Philip Glass? And they're just not crediting him? Yeah. At least he, yes, he does a better job. This sounds more like the Man of Steel Yes. score than anything else he's done so far and you know that's fine it's just not the most imaginative thing in the world i've ever heard no I, again i i got no issues with the score and i was expecting the worst from him because he has for me spoiled detracted from you know a lot of the films he's done the scores for at the same time he's also done some incredible scores so like i say i find him equal parts genius and frustrated but yeah no issues with the score here you know what what things didn't you like about the film bill well the only thing i uh, my my biggest thing was I mean, this is this is stupid, but it's like you're walking out of the theater. It doesn't 
it doesn't close the deal. I no. mean, this this is a big picture thing. It is half a film. That's why I'm re- reserving my full review until I see Dune Part Two. You don't get a right and proper crescendo at the end. It's it's or a denouement. It's it's half a story. I mean, that's not a comment on the film. That is a comment on the way you know we are watching movies. It's half of a film, and they you know you couldn't make a full film out of it. It's almost like when you went to go see The Matrix. No one else loves this. The Matrix Reloaded. Matrix Reloaded doesn't end. Like, barely ends on a cliffhanger. It's like, oh, come back and watch the next one of these because you're not going to give you a full film now. It's like, okay. Well, we weren't trained to watch movies this way, but I'll go with it because it's doing and I love it. But maybe the only other things that i trying to imagine all the stuff that was in the book that I thought Villeneuve was going to expand on more and realizing that, well, he has the same problem to some degree as Lynch. He's just solving his problems differently in terms of how do you cram all this stuff into a movie, into a large package, into, what was it, 238, 230 or something like that in terms of runtime? Yeah, I think um, it was 235, yeah. 235. At, at no point is there a mention of the Spacing Guild. At no point is there a mention of the Chome Corporation. At no point is there a mention of the Mentats. Uh, there's no mention of the Butlerian Jihad. I mean, I know that I'm sitting here ticking through all this, this ephemera that really doesn't matter. But on the other hand, if you're going to show uh, Stephen McKinley's uh, eyes rolling over when someone asks him to make a computation, I do kind of think you might explain, you might use that, not just explain it, but it's like that's in the movie for a reason because you want that to pay off. You want that to be an asset storytelling-wise, and they really didn't do that. You know, and again, he made a lot of decisions that Lynch did too, just assuming that, for instance, everyone, when the betrayal comes down, Lady Jessica is the first person everyone suspects of it because of her allegiance to the Bene Gesserit. Lynch did not use that. Villeneuve didn't use that. And in fact, Villeneuve barely uses the Bene Gesserit so far. Until, of course, you get to a couple of interesting parts. I like the fact that they added the stuff of prophecy. That's right out of the book. That's a very interesting thing that Lynch didn't use, but Villeneuve does. So maybe there's a lot of like Dooney stuff, really Dooney type details that are endemically Dune, that make Dune Dune, that uh, were thrown a bit to the side in favor of having a traditional action structure with people running through a building and having knife fights with Sadakar and stuff like that. Not that that doesn't, that that doesn't happen in the book as well, but I mean, you're losing some, again, you maybe wanted a fat, bloated, disgusting baron. I would have liked to some more lip service to the politics, lip service to what the governorship of Arrakis actually means. Why is any of this stuff happening? They haven't explained the spice. They really haven't told you what the spice is so far. It's kind of a big deal. Uh, I assume they'll get to it, but you go through two hours, 35 minutes without really telling you what the spice does. It's kind of important. My criticisms of this film, I think, are twofold. The, the, the previous one I mentioned about the fact that the Baron, I think, is just not... He's nowhere near as effective a villain as I think this film needs. And I, I think... Any story is only as good as this villain, and then the other aspect, which, like that first one, I'm not willing to forgive it for that. And it could well turn out that this is all worthless criticism because later on in in the the second part, he could really come to the forefront and he could really sort of make up for those shortcomings here. The other criticism, which you mentioned, is the fact that this is only the first half of the story. By design, that is a fault that's built into this film, which I'm willing to forgive it for. But that wasn't until yesterday when Neil, he made a comment about the ending of the film. I didn't follow him up on it. I didn't talk to him about it. And I thought, I wonder what he means by that. But then I thought about it. And he said that that was no way to end the film. Now, whatever the right way was to end the film, I'm not really sure. Having, you know, like I say, not read the books, it could be, they may be in another junction point earlier on in the story that would have been a suitable drop off or maybe later on. But if Peter Jackson is going to be the third and final Lord of the Rings comparison I'm going to make, 
if Peter Jackson can finish the Fellowship of the Ring, and especially the Two Towers, which I think ends on such a fantastic note, where I am just salivating for more and completely satisfied with what I've just seen on both occasions, in the first and second film, then I think surely, with a bit of more considered writing, that they could have done the same thing here. Because like Neil said, yeah, that film could have ended better. Or this film, sorry. You know, this, this latest film could have ended better. Or fucking shoot them at the same time and release them six months apart. You know, I mean, it, it, again, you can have this if you play into it, you know? Yeah. Like, if, if we are not waiting with bated breath too long, which we're going to wind up sitting here with half a movie for close to two and a half years until... And then they play this fucking yo-yo game with us. If with, they weren't going to greenlight it until a good week and a half after it was a smash. Then they finally decided to stop teasing us. And so, well, you know, this stuff doesn't really help the studio's case. But, I mean, we're going to see it, but you're jerking us around a little but, bit. But, yeah, but what I will do, I will put that second bit of criticism about the the incomplete nature of the film on a set of wheels where i can comfortably roll it out of the way because (laughs) that is the nature of the beast here and this is not anything by villeneuve's design this is because of the global situation it's about the state of the film industry at the moment and how uncertain a thing it is i'm just glad we've actually got this film the fact that i've been able to see it on a huge screen with incredible sound I've, i've been totally immersed by it Overall, for me, that is something I'm able to disregard and and forgive him for because it's not his fault as a filmmaker. It's just the circumstances he's been presented with. Yeah, you know, he he strikes me as a guy who has a real innate understanding of the material. He strikes me as a guy who has a love of the book. And again, rather than presenting the book one for one, which nobody could do, nobody should try to do, I really love his adaptation, his what he thought were the most important parts of the... I mean, you know, there's a lot this has in common. The story beats are obviously the same narratively with the 84 version. But he tells the story differently in small, subtle ways. And again, as somebody who's watched the original Dune 100 times, who's read the book a few times, who's just studied the stuff over and over again, I appreciate the little filigree details that he chose. Um, And that's why, like, yeah, I, I too am willing to... Let this stuff all go away and give a complete review in 2023 or whenever it comes out. And, you know, this will just be air coming out of my mouth. We don't even listen to what I've said later on once we've seen the whole thing put together. So, Bill, I accept the fact that you, you've mentioned now the fact that you, you're not going to be able to give a, you know, a kind of complete verdict on this film. But at this point, I'm going to insert the sound of some papers being rustled as I'm going through the film 89 contract that you signed in blood a few years back. <laughs> I must remind you that if you look at page 16, paragraph 3, you are contractually obliged to give a rating and a verdict out of 10 for every new film we review. (laughs) But before we come to that, before we come to your final thoughts and your verdict on this film, Bill, I just want to ask, right, now that we've only, now that we've had the first part, but given what we've seen so far, do you think that Villeneuve's Dune might be the best adaptation of Frank Herbert's books that we've had so far? Oh yeah, without question. Absolutely. I'll say that without without reservation. And um, I knew it was going to be that way all along. What is the better surprise? What is more endearing is the fact that we're having this conversation and there's so much gestalt enthusiasm around us right now. Mm-hmm. And that this is not a vacuum. This isn't just a couple of people in a room chattering to each other in an echo chamber. This is this is a feeling that's I'm, I'm watching. I'm listening on Facebook 
you know, my old college professors, my writing professors watch Dune sitting there saying, hey, that wasn't half bad. And I read that book in 71. You know, I love seeing weird, disparate responses like that. So it's not just, you know, all of our white bread nerd friends. It's it's this cross age, cross culture. You know, our, our mutual friend, Matthias van der Roost, watched Dune and he, you know, he watched the original Dune because I asked him to and he we watched it together and he watched this. It's just such a, a cross spectral thing, which is great. Uh, sitting in the same room with people who are enjoying the same thing I'm enjoying. So go on then, Bill. Wrap it up and give it a mark out of 10 if you can. Uh, 9 out of 10, and the next star will come at the conclusion of Dune Part 2. I'm going to be awkward then, Bill. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Not awkward at all. Totally (laughs) rational. I I think Villeneuve's direction is sound. I think the visual execution, which is so important for something like an adaptation of an epic, otherworldly science fiction story such as this, is superb. The visual execution is just sublime. I think that $170 million budget, which is the the reported estimate budget for this first part, seems to have been economically used to great effect. I think that pretty much phenomenal cast are mostly all on point. Um, Whilst I do think that this film does lose out on some of the expository stuff that Lynch's film was able to get across with that damn whispered thought narration. I think it still does enough to not completely baffle someone like me who hasn't read the books. There are some problems, as I've said. I think Baron Harkonnen is just limp and feels almost generic and certainly tamed down in comparison to Ken McMillan's awesome take on the character in Lynch's film. The film does, I think it does kind of careen to a third act that never really happens. It's in this final stretch of the film where I think it just goes a little bit limp and maybe loses steam, which is a shame because maybe when played as a whole with this follow-up, it'll all come together and none of this, even, you know, this is all kind of removable criticism that could dissolve when I see the second part. And it's certainly not going to detract from my overall recommendation that anyone with even a slight interest in science fiction and certainly epic filmmaking in general needs to see Dune on as big a screen as possible with a suitably awesome sound system to match because this is what the big screen is made for. I I really did enjoy the film. Like I say, not perfect, but then it's the first part of the story. And taken in context of the film that we're going to see now in October 2023, everything could come together perfectly. And overall, my score for this film or two films could be higher. But at the moment, I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. Sky, we also we got to make sure that people go back and watch 84 Dune too because I we oh, could have yeah. done three hours on that yeah. for Christ's sake. Yes, 100%. Yeah, yeah. The, the, this film has made me want to go back and, and watch uh, 84 Dune. Not in a way that, oh yeah, I've really not liked this. I now want to go back and watch that version. No, this film has given me a great appreciation for the source material, or you know, and it's it's even got me thinking now I really need to you know read the book. But then it's also made me think, do you know what? I don't know why I can't put a, a finger on it, but I really do want to go back and watch Lynch's film. because I, Maybe because I think in the, in the days that followed me watching it, I've been thinking about this film and that film, and I just want to go back and watch it again, which is only a good yeah. thing, I think. And, and now I, I just, again, if you're going to watch it, I mean, I'm saying not just to you, but to anybody, any you who's in the sound of my voice right now, I would completely recommend a longer cut. I would recommend one of the good fan cuts. I would recommend Spice Divers mm-hmm. Cut. It's out there. You can download it. It is, you know, not sanctioned, but it is a more elegant and more complete version. If you want to go all in, you will get something more approaching what the entire vision was using a lot of the original film material that's been forgotten to time. So I'll just put that out there. Sure. But then, you know, as I did the, the other night with our uh, Halloween Kills episode, we had, we had a 0.5 score, and in terms of the same fairness I applied to that film, we ra- will round it up. So I give it an 8, you give it a 9, we'll round it up to 9 out of 10. So that's a film at E9 verdict for Dune Part 1 of 9 out of 10. Excellent. Excellent. 
So, Bill, there you go. This is the second time you've been on now in 2021. That's true. Yeah, it was, it was the um, second time. Army of the Dead. Yes, yes, yeah. Army of the Dead, which was much different. That was uh, not quite the rollout that we got from this movie, but still uh, Army yeah. of the Dead. People are still talking about it today, Scott. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bill, thanks for coming on. You know, it, it had to be you. I, I know how much this film has meant to you and how much you were looking forward to it. You know, you personally have been a catalyst to me kind of looking forward to this film more because I, you know, I rewatched Lynch's film. You know, you were able to fill in the kind of narrative gaps I missed out by not having read the books and i i have uh, yeah to reference back like you said i did a video on brad duroff i've done a video on ken mcmillan because dune has a long tail for me i've also done with wrong reel i've done a podcast on dune that happened i think in uh, 2018 and that was a big omnibus podcast with marcus and martin and me and jamie that was that was and john cribs was there too yeah um and i also we did we did a live stream on dune and also me and james did a live stream on the trailer release when it first dropped so yeah there's there's a lot of dune content that there would be in it if you want to revisit this stuff it's on a combination of youtube and podcasts yeah and it's all great stuff bill where can people reach you if they want to hit you up on social media to chat dune or uh, or anything else uh, film or tv related I am at William Scurry on Twitter, and you will always find me there shooting my mouth off on uh, GMT plus two time. And I, uh, I have my own podcast called I Don't Get It. If you really love the sound of my voice, uh, me and my friend Noah Tarno talk about pop culture trends, give them a, a, a fair shake along the way, as two old men in our dotage do. That is uh, at Noah and Bill's show. You will find that there. So at William Scurry and at Noah and Bill's show. Fantastic. And you can reach me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies, and you can find the rest of the Film 89 crew at Film 89 UK on Twitter and Facebook, and please check out the website, film89.co.uk. Thank you, everyone, once again. The um, Halloween Kills or Halloween Special 2021 uh, episode is, is currently uh, killing it, and we're getting some fantastic feedback and loads of downloads. Really appreciate that. We're hoping that by the time this episode drops, um, it'll it'll should be the, uh, you know, the first week of November, by which point hopefully you've all uh, had a chance to see Dune. If not, get out there and see it. Get back to the cinema. That's what you're here for. You're not here just to listen to us talk about film. You're here to get us to get you to go and watch film. So please, cinema isn't dead. It's very much alive. And this is much more than I could have, you know, certainly from a personal point of view, could have hoped, you know, the situation to be like, you know, going back to last year when we were all, you know, in, in the drudges of lockdown. So please go and see Dune. It, it really is that good. I think that's it, Bill. We're done. Yes, sir. Nothing uh, else need be said. Not nothing until the else second part comes out. Other than, I'll leave it to you, Bill. Stay safe. But more importantly... Stay classy. Yeah, stay classy, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>